This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Federico Larson, CTO and co-founder of Copato, a DevOps platform for Salesforce that's raised over $250 million in funding. Federico, thanks for chatting with me today. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. So I'm a software engineer. I am from Argentina, from a small city in the Atlantic coast. And um, I think I was uh, almost right out of university. And I was very lucky, I would say, that I received this weird job offer to, to work for a tiny company that was the first system integrator for Salesforce in Latin America. It was 2005, like 18 years ago. I don't know. I said, yes, I like the idea. You know, I fall in love with the platform. And, and since then, I've been working on the Salesforce ecosystem since that time. I love Argentina. I went there in 2017 and went down to like El Calafate. Have you been down there oh, before? Not there, but nearby. I've been in the mountains there. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It's so amazing. What year did you leave there? Or how old were you when you left Argentina? So I was living in a place called Mar del Plata, um, originally from another place called Necochea, but I went there for the university when I was 17. And then I lived there until I was 30. And now it's been 14 years since I'm in Spain. And did you have, you know, were your parents entrepreneurs? Was anyone in your family an entrepreneur? Like, where did this entrepreneurship come from for you? So my two parents were, they have their own business, you know, like a, a retail shop. And then they kind of uh, also invest a little bit in real estate. So they kind of uh, own their own destiny. I, I know I wanted the same. But also I wanted to be a professional. So I studied engineering and I started learning by working for others. But that was always about, I need to have my own business. That was something I had to do at some point in my life. Mm, so that was always in the back of your head the entire time that eventually you wanted to have your own business. Yes, exactly. And then was Copato the first business that you started or were there other ones before that? So... There was others. First, I become a, like a contractor. So the first time I, I quit my pay job and say, now I'm on my own was just becoming like a solo trader, like a contractor. So that was the first step into that direction. And then I have a, a small consultancy and then Copala. So actually, Copala is kind of the first one that got a little bit of success, let's say. Now, a few other questions that we like to ask, really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one is, what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire most about them? So for me, it was um, Parker Harris, the founder or co-founder and CTO of Salesforce was for me like a role model. Right? When, right out of university, I got in front of these, you know, huge software companies and said, wow, this is amazing, all this technology. And then I was looking at him to see, well, I want to be like him someday, like, you know, be the founder of a great software company uh, someday in, in my life. And fortunately, I have the chance to meet him uh, a few times. And so, um, yeah, he's one of my role models, I would say. So that maintained then? I feel like sometimes when you meet a role model in person, like, they don't live up to the expectations that you had, but it, it sounds like you lived up to the expectations. Yes, yes, you were. That's amazing. 
Now, what about books, books that had a specific you know, major impact on you? Something that we like to ask here for like additional context is, you know, um, I stole this from someone else, but they call them a quake book. So they say a quake book is a book that just like rocks your whole world and, and changes how you view the world or think about the world. Do any books like that to mind? Absolutely. So, I mean, in, let's say in the early days when I, not in the company, in the early days of the company, when, uh, when I was in university, one of the books that I really got in my head was Conquest of Mind by Egmat uh, S. Warren. And it's about the, you know, kind of a, be aware of what's your mind thinking. If you think about your mind works 24 hours, and if you don't think on the stuff that will take you where you want to be, or the things that, what kind of person you want to become, and then you're wasting thoughts. So it's kind of a, be aware of what you're thinking, try to guide your mind on think the stuff that, that you need to think will give you a lot of power. So that, for me, that was uh, mind blowing because I was not aware of my thoughts at all. <laughs> so, and then later I, I started. I read everything written by Tony Robbins, and I think that gave me a lot of uh, energy and decision power to jump and start on my own. And then, I mean, the recently, maybe last five years or so, um, I got into this book called Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink, which mm -hmm. I think it, it was super useful. We we give it away to all our employees so that you know we can really you know grow the company and ownership of everything that you you get to do in the company so are you going to the gym at 3 a.m like jocko <laughs> <laughs> no no I, I wish but i'm an early bird i, I like to wake up earlier nice yeah I, I follow him on social media and, and he's hardcore jocko's hardcore and I, I also read that book and such a great book yeah yeah i mean audiobook that one in an audiobook is great because he's is with his voice which is very powerful voice so it's yeah i love it have you heard of the book you can't hurt me Ah, yes, I've seen it. Uh, I guess I always, I think the Audible is proposing me that book because I read this other, but I never, I never read that one. Is that a good one? Yeah, it's really good. If you like extreme ownership, it's like extreme, extreme ownership. It's a, a very good book. The guy's very, very intense, very hardcore, but I think you'll enjoy that. It's a fun read and, and they do it, especially on the audiobook. It's an interesting format. They like, do a chapter and then they do a little podcast after the chapter with the author so he can talk through like more context with what was happening. So it's just a really cool format. Thank you. I, I would make another that. Yeah. No problem. Now let's switch gears a bit here and let's dive into the company. So for those who aren't familiar, could you just paint a picture for us and give us kind of a high level overview of what the company does? Yeah. So we do DevOps for Salesforce and that's something that at the beginning, it didn't exist, right? We kind of created that category. And um, and you think about um, Salesforce always wanted to make the that implementing Salesforce was easy. So easy. I remember this no software uh, flag. I get it's just clicking, clicks, no code, etc. So we realized that Salesforce become more complex and, and they acquire more companies and then the implementations are bigger with they become kind of the customer platform, what they call themselves, right? Everything that happens around the customer is on Salesforce, and it has a lot of um, very critical systems, right? The integration with MuleSoft or Commerce Cloud or what's not. So we realize that in my career, every year, the project will be bigger, with bigger budget and more complex. And to the point that, you know, you cannot manage, you know, the platform as uh, just a point and click thing. You need to really collaborate with all the stakeholders, People from security, from the, the product uh, development, the product managers. So a lot of people are part of the software 
you know, machinery. And that was not um, in the DNA of a seller. So I think we brought that, you know, a structure process, agile methodology and DevOps methodology so that you can deliver changes and application on the server platform as if you were developing on any other platform, right? Mm. So that was what we do. And, and we have a, this emphasis on the business user, on the low coder and no coder, because in the Salesforce world, you always have these admins or low coders that are contributing at the same level as a pro coder, right? And they speak different languages, different mindset, and you need to make them work together. And also it's a focus on quality, right? Delivering quality, build trust with your customer, give you speed. And so that's what, what Copado does, makes the software development at scale possible and much better. Now, take me back to 10 years ago. I think I saw that you started the company in 2012, so a decade in. What were those early conversations like with you and your co-founder when you were discussing this problem? And what was it about this problem that made you say, yes, let's go, let's go solve this problem? What was it about? Yeah, so I was a contractor, as I mentioned before, and we were contracted, myself and Philip Brack with the, my co-founder as the Salesforce experts to do a huge Salesforce and Viva rollout that were 30 countries in a single org, right? We recommended that the best practice was to have everything in a single instance so that you can share all the best practices, the reports, the data, and then we have to deliver that, that vision, right? And as soon as we started implementing the candidate, it was a huge chaos. Like Italy would override Germany, Australia, with override, you know, Canada and all of a sudden, you know, the system was totally unstable. Nobody was able to to deploy anything. So we had to say, well, either we quit, you know, and lose our reputation and move to the next contract, or we can actually sit down and fix it and we choose the latter. So we say nobody deploys anything else. We're gonna start putting some processes, uh, collaboration, automation scripts so that we can make this possible. And then after three years, we delivered the, the 30 countries in a single instance, and it was a huge success for, for the company and also as a, as a president for, for Salesforce and Viva in the European region. And was DevOps a popular term back in 2012? No, we, we were talking about release management, deployments. Then later on, we, we switched to talk about DevOps because we were doing DevOps without maybe knowing and can you paint a picture for us just to understand, you know, the scale of the company, like customer count or just anything that really highlights the scale that you're operating at for our listeners to understand? Sure. So we raised $250 million in capital in three series. On our last series, we got the unicorn status. So that was a milestone. And we have uh, 1,200 enterprise customers, right? So wow. it's been a journey. Yeah. I hope that it can paint you a little bit on the size and, and, and the scale of the company. And then our customers are mainly, you know, Fortune 1000 customers, like the likes, you know, Coca-Cola or Google or that kind of customers. Now, in those early days, was the intention to build a billion dollar plus company? You know, like when you started this, did you say, let's build big and let's go hard? Like, was that the idea or did you almost accidentally stumble into this big, massive company? totally accidental. So, I mean, if you think about the number one job first was to, you know, not to fail in that contract role, right? Because that would have been the first failure in my career as a consultant or contractor, yeah. right? And 
hopefully that never happened. We, but then we said, oh, if we solve this for ourselves, which, you know, we were, the two of us were, you know, fairly experienced with Salesforce, right? Uh, remember, I, I started in 2005. My co-founder started with Salesforce in 2007. So we had a lot of experience back then in comparison to others. So look, if we are facing this problem, I'm sure many other teams running thousands of other projects in thousands of customers, they're having the same inefficiencies, the same problems. So if we solve it for ourselves, we might be able to be after something. So we decided that let's put it on the app exchange, which is the Salesforce marketplace for business applications. And, and our idea was, well, maybe we can, people with swipe the credit card, download the software, and we just go to the beach and, and surf and just <laughs> just get the money coming our way. But that was very far from the truth because without knowing it, we were getting into an enterprise sale. We had to meet every single customer, explain our value proposition, deal with all these contracts and, and legal and compliance and security, and then making sure they are successful. And so we have to build the entire Salesforce model where you have, you know, AEs, you know, customer success managers, you know, the mm-hmm. uh, sales engineering and you know, customer support, everything. Like we had little by little, we started to replicate every single function as we were growing. So uh, far away from, actually, we don't even accept credit card payments. Right, a few months after we realized that that was not the play, the play was an enterprise sale. Mm. Now, do you remember what it was like the day that you found out you were going to become a unicorn? Obviously, that's you know a big goal of every founder. I think if you're in technology, you're right. At, at some point, you want to have a company have a major exit. You want to ring the bell and you want to go public and you want to become a unicorn and build a unicorn. And the number I think I found was point, I may get this wrong, but it's like 0.000006% of startups become a unicorn. So it's quite rare. So for you, what did it feel like that day? Was it just a normal day or like, was it euphoric? Did it feel good? Like, do you remember? Take us back. So I think it was on a, on a call, on a, on a few emails. So yeah, I, I got really like very excited. But then when I kind of um, realized, it was when I got the term sheet, uh, you know, for the, and you know, in those terms, you express, you know, you don't put one B or you actually put every single zero there. Right. So yeah. it was like, oh my God. Oh, <laughs> it was like nine zeros. I was like, what? No, it was crazy. So it really was crazy. But reality is after 15 minutes, you go back to work, you forget about it, and you continue executing. So it's like, um, don't do it to get to that moment because that moment, it lasts, you know, a few minutes. You need to really be after something bigger than that. So it's nice to, when you look back or to get some attraction, attention from media or other entrepreneurs, but for you, that should not be a goal because you will be disappointed uh, if that's your only goal. Did you have any struggles at all with that becoming a distraction? Some of the other founders that I've had on who have built unicorn companies, they say that it's a big deal for everyone in the company. And then that can lead to distractions. Everyone can you know, sometimes start to like, work a little bit less harder because they feel like they've, you know, won, even though it was just, you know, evaluation that they were able to achieve. Did you have to struggle with that at all and have any talks with your team to say, hey, you know, this is great. This is exciting, but let's get back to work. Or did everyone just instantly know that's what you do and they just got back to work right away? I think for us, that wasn't the case. You know, we have a mission. We are executing that mission 
And I think everyone was excited. And I think it is a sense of pride because we were the ones that make it happen, right? And, and everyone worked so hard and they continue to work hard because you always have, you know, a mission that never ends, right? We, we want to end release days. Like today, when you release something, oh, that's a big deal day because something could go wrong or people will call you if something is, is not right. And so we want to end release day so that you can release every day and nobody will notice because everything will work. They all will notice just that they get better, better software and, and better value, not because of something is wrong. And I think you're never done, right, with that. That's an aspirational kind of goal. And people is, you know, keep executing that. And you always can have, you know, bigger goals. Once you become a unicorn, then, well, now we're going to, you know, be a public traded company. And now everyone is excited. Oh, we, we need to ring the bell. We need to go public. And I'm sure that it will be the same thing after you ring the bell, maybe 15 minutes later. Okay, back to work now. Well, mm-hmm. you know, I guess you're always, you know, looking for something to motivate you towards. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now, what do you think you got right? building this company, you know, obviously people want to build companies this big. That is something that, you know, is aspirational for founders. They want to be able to sit here and say, we have thousands of enterprise logos and enterprise clients. What do you think you and the team got right? I think that the innovations that we brought, and it was, if you think about before Copado, and I think it might be still true for all the other software companies or other uh, technologies, which is, well, Releasing software, it's about, or it used to be about just merging branches and building scripts that deploy something, right? It was a very technical thing. You know, oh, if you think about you want to release something, well, okay, what's your release brand? How you merge and now how you build it? And for us, coming from a background of a Salesforce background, we really have this persona, the Salesforce admin. We thought that this is, doesn't make any sense to these business users. So we come up with the idea of releasing software or deploying software. It's not about merging branches and mm-hmm. deploy. It's about moving user stories through a visual pipeline that takes stories, which are business requirements, from one environment to another environment until it reaches production. So, mm-hmm. you know, so you know exactly what you're doing. So, okay, I have this user story that say accept PayPal payments on the website. Now you click on that user story, you deploy that story, so you know exactly what you deployed, what you need to communicate with the, with the business and the stakeholders. And behind the scenes, Copado will merge a feature branch, it will create a release branch, it will do a build script, whatever. But that is, you know, that is the under the hood that you don't really need to care about it. So we make it so easy, though, that you move business requirements through a pipeline. And, and I think that that really resonated in, in the Salesforce ecosystem. And when it comes to your market category, is it DevOps platform for Salesforce? Is that the actual category or how do you think about your market category? So, I mean, we created that category for Salesforce DevOps or Salesforce release management uh, maybe 10 years ago. And it took a while for Salesforce to acknowledge and recognize that that was an actual category because they keep have this mantra of, oh, no code, uh, you know, no software, clicks, not code and all of that. But 
you know, today Salesforce even have a small product called Salesforce DevOps, right? So, or DevOps Center, I think it's called, which also resembles a little bit the, how Copado looks like, but it does say 1% of what Copado does. So now the industry is more aware of it, right? I think back in the day, we had to explain why it was important to do DevOps for Salesforce. Now the industry is educated and we have competitors now, which is great because the being, being alone, it might, what are these guys doing here? But now when you have a few competitors and now there are even analysts that talk about Salesforce DevOps only, right? And so I think we created that category and I mean, that's very rewarding and for my business. It was great because you get the brand, you get the first customers and you get the first experiences. So yeah, I don't know if I answered your question or, or if I diverted a little bit. No, no, you, you definitely did. I guess the follow-up to that would be, you know, was that an intentional strategy? Like at the time, did you say, hey, we are creating a market category here? Or did that happen almost accidentally where you were just working, evangelizing this idea? And because of that, it created a category. It's, I guess we were super focused on, we need to solve this problem, right? Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, before actually building the solution, we tried to look after other solutions, how others are doing this and you know how big companies are the points of The only thing we could get out was Jenkins and some scripts that said, well, this is, I know that this doesn't work. So we were very focused on building, so solving a problem. That was our focus. And, and kind of accidentally, when we uploaded our solution, well, nobody else was there in the Salesforce app exchange. So basically... We created a category and at some point they give us that category in, because at the beginning we were on the admin tools or something like that. And later on, we got the, the category, right? Risk management, I think was the category they gave us. And now everyone is talking about DevOps and DevOps for Salesforce. Now, when I do my research, I find all these nice articles about you, about the company, you know, raising a quarter billion dollars, having a billion dollar plus valuation. It's all like the glory. And I think that's what often happens in entrepreneurship is you see the good stories, the, you know, the happy stories, the positive stories. But what often gets missed are the painful stories you know, behind the scenes. So one question that we like to always ask companies is, are there any near-death experiences that you can share? You know, Were there any times where it really got down to where you, know, you had maybe a few months of cash left and you needed to make some changes or any stories like that that you can share that highlight the pain and the struggles that you've gone through to build this big, successful mm-hmm. company? So at the beginning, we were, you know, as an European-founded company with an European mindset, we were always, you know, cash flow positive. We always, you know, we didn't follow the American way of uh, just burn as much money as you can as long as you're growing. And so at the early days, which are supposed to be the, the hardest one, they were the safest one because we will have, you know, cash in, in the bank to pay, you know, one or two years of salary for the five, four employees that we have, right? So it was very, very healthy company. But then when it maybe got more complicated, I would say that, you know, in last summer, when because of the sudden the world changed, we have this mindset of growing at all costs. And all of a sudden, you know, that world doesn't exist. All the investors that were behind you, you know, they say they wouldn't fund you anymore unless you are cash flow positive. They're like, that's, mm-hmm. well, but who cares about that yeah, two months ago, right? And and now that was a hard moment to actually, you know, change the mindset of everyone because you now you need to reestablish a culture of being cost conscious or on being productive on, you know, 
And I think that we are finally, you know, getting that mentality that will bake into the, into the culture. And the company is, is about to become profitable at the end of the year. But it took us a little bit over, it's going to be like 16 or 18 months to change the shit, to change the mindset, the culture, so that everyone is cost conscious. Like, you know, before people, oh, I'm just going to travel here. I'm going to do there. I'm going to invite a customer here. I'm going to send swag and I'm going to buy laptops and I'm going to do a lot of things. But then when you need to change the, the mindset, okay, why am I doing this? What's the outcome? You know, who can come? Can we do it cheaper? Can we fly someone local? Can we do that? You start to think about other things that before you, you wouldn't do. So it, it took us like more than a year to change mm-hmm. that. But I think now we are in very good shape. And it looks like in the early days, being so cost conscious when you're a few people and, and you know exactly how many cash you have in the bank and you need to do. So I think now we're getting to that stage again after, you know, going through these crazy times where money was thrown at you every day. So no more swag. So I shouldn't expect to get my Cablado jacket in the mail anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, there might be some outstanding from, you know, we bought so much. <laughs> <laughs> now, if we look at the fundraising and you've raised a lot of money, we've covered that. But what have you learned along the way, you know, in that fundraising journey, those fundraising efforts? Are there any tactical lessons that you've learned that you could share with other B2B founders who are also fundraising? Yes, I could say something. I mean, also put in context that we only raise capital during these crazy times where money was abundant. So Mm-hmm. Our experience might not be as rich as someone that raised capital in normal times, but I think it's very important to choose, you know, all dollars are green, but all VCs are not the same. So you really need to choose the VC that will help you and that will help you to grow your business with higher chances. So nobody can guarantee it, but you need to choose the one that can help you the most. And for us, what was very clear was Inside Partners, because when... We saw their portfolio companies, they have a specific category for the Salesforce ecosystem and not all or not many others VCs has a, a specific focus on the Salesforce ecosystem. So we were seeing, oh, they are under, you know, own backup, uh, which is a great company as well. They were behind, I think it was CloudCrace and it got, got sold to Salesforce and now it's Commerce Cloud B2B. They were, I think, was also the marketing cloud acquisition. It was sold by them. And so they were kind of a behind every Encino, the banking system, now is a public company. So every single successful ISV partner in the, the Salesforce ecosystem was kind of baked by inside partners. So when they came to us, so this is it. I mean, we don't need to go look further because these are the VC to succeed in the Salesforce world. And I, and I think... They have been a great partner since the beginning. And outside of fundraising, if you were starting this company again from scratch today, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give to yourself? So maybe I can think about two. One, which I think it's kind of our next challenge as a company, how we come together. Because if you think about Copado, when the pandemic started, we were like uh, 120 employees by the time Mm -hmm. that the the pandemic finished, it was like, oh, we were like almost 700 employees. So we hire so much people in all different places because kind of at the, at the beginning, we were, well, we only hire in Chicago, Bay Area, Madrid, and that was it, right? And we'd have these three places. 
And during the pandemic, oh, now we can tap the talent of all the places. So we start hiring. We have, you know, at every single city in the U.S. pretty much or every single state and in 15 countries, a lot of countries in Europe. And now getting together, you know, to foster the culture, to keep that sense of unity and get to know the people that you work every day is super hard. Now it's super hard, super expensive to fly people all over the place. And to me, so if I would start again, I would say, yes, remote work, work from home, everything. But we need to be in a certain area or maybe a few certain areas where whenever you need to come get together once a month, once a week, once a quarter, it's mm-hmm. easy. It's simple. You don't need to, you know, fly all over the place, all the people to to get together. So I think that that's a challenge that we have as a company at the moment to how we can get more efficient to to get together more often. Then the other maybe piece of advice is when you raise capital, you you need to hire a lot of people, right? That's why you raise the capital. You raise the capital to go hire a lot of people so that you can build this great company. Mm-hmm. So hiring is so important. Sometimes you will see people that they have a track record. Oh, they have done it in a similar company, in the same ecosystem. Because of they have done it before, it doesn't mean that they can do it in your company. So you really need to really, those interviews don't give anything for granted. Because you will, you will can have surprises that, you know, people that in paper look like we were supposed to be the best executive ever, all of a sudden they weren't able to deliver much. So I think that's another piece of advice that I would give to myself. Now you're 10 years into this journey. What motivates you today? Obviously 10 years is a long time to spend building a company. Do you ever have days where you feel less motivated or do you wake up every day just ready to run through brick walls in the same way that you probably were in 2012 when you were just starting the company? No, I mean, I would lie if I say that every day I have the same level of energy. I think it goes up and downs with, of course, being up most of the times. And I think your job will change over time, right? Hyperscaling a company, the company will be a different animal every six months or every, you know, every year is going to be different. And so you need to kind of reinvent your yourself. You need to rethink well, where you can add value and 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 how to work with others. And so I think you find motivation on learning and growing together with a company. I also seen customer success is one of the things that really, you know, rewards me the most when I see our users, they become like heroes in their companies and they get promoted and they get teams and they maybe they get hired by a, not a bigger company and they, they really progress on their career and they take Copado on their back so that they can implement Copado on their, on their next job. So seeing those stories about people that get, you know, they get a better quality of life because you think about they were kind of staying late at night, you know, trying to fix a deployment and, you know, their spouse at home, you know, saying, are you coming to dinner or not? What's going on? You know, and then when this happened every week and then you still start to struggle personally at the personal level. And we come up and all of a sudden they are successful. They don't, they can get to go back home early, even on day and they get promoted. And all of a sudden you're really impacting the life of people. And with having uh, hundreds of thousands of users with, uh, you know, impacting their lives and their families, that's uh, a huge reward. So that really, you know, kind of uh, pump you up every, every day. And then of course, as CTO, you're always looking for for new technology to experiment on how to impact your customers in a different way. And I think for me, I have two big motivations alongside with customer success, which is one is keep building our platform 
so that more partners, more customers can extend it and customize it to your own and get to see what they build on top of your platform that you could never imagine. That is really rewarding, saying what the ideas they come up with, what they do. And also now, very recently, AI, right? The generative AI that is mind-blowing what, what it can do. And we are seated in such amount of data that we can really help our customers in a whole new way, in ways that we couldn't even dream about, you know, a few months ago. So AI for DevOps, I think is going to be big impact on our users. So those three things really keep me up every day. And final question here for you before we wrap, let's zoom out three to five years from today. What's the vision for the company? What are you trying to build and, and what do you hope the organization will look like three to five years from now? It's difficult to tell, right? You don't have the crystal ball to, to say, but at least where we would like to be, I think we want to keep growing our DevOps exchange, which is kind of the Salesforce app exchange, but for DevOps solutions so that we are kind of the, the hub and the platform, like the gold standard for Salesforce DevOps, where mm-hmm. every relevant player that has either static analysis or, you know, or, you know, uh, security or whatever that is that they're doing in, within the DevOps space that they need to connect to us and they are connected to us. And we are kind of the standard way of doing things. We also, we're investing a lot of effort on robotics and making automated testing easy and or in sometimes even possible for, for cloud applications and mobile applications. So we see a lot of uh, automation happening with that and even task automations where things that they don't have an API that you need to go and click somewhere on a website or an app, on a mobile app that we now we can send robots to do that. And so everything becomes more automatic, more reliable, more efficient. So, and I mean, as a company, as a goal, we are on a journey to become a public traded company, right? So I think that next milestone after becoming a unicorn, I guess, you know, the next milestone is now, okay, now we need to go to the NASDAQ or, you know, and, and ring the bell and, and, and become a public traded company. So I think that, you know, kind of, I would like to, if I need to be three years time from now, I, I would be like that, a very established exchange of solutions, you know, with robots all over the place being a public company. I think if we achieve those three, I think we're going to be in a very good place. Well, I look forward to seeing you ring the bell. I'll be watching for it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. We are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where should they go? Well, I'm on LinkedIn. I don't have uh, Twitter or Instagram or anything like that. So I'm only on LinkedIn. You can find my my name and Copado. Go to our website, copado.com. I believe um, maybe we have a Twitter account for the company. And so you can follow our account there or our LinkedIn page as well. Amazing. Federico, thank you so much for taking the time to share lessons that you've learned along your journey building this unicorn company and really just to have a fun conversation. It's been a blast. I've really enjoyed it. And I know the audience is going to as well. So thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brett. Bye-bye. Keep in touch.